Psalm 144. Is that where we're going to be this morning? himself and for his people. And so in order to help us to remember the parts of this psalm, of which there are six that we're going to journey through today, I'm going to use an acrostic, and that acrostic is scepter, like what a king holds in his hand, scepter, S-E-P-T-E-R. So there's six parts, and in just a moment I'm going to read it, and you'll see kind of the map laid out in real time here. The first one is strength. The S is strength. God is King David. This is definitely a Davidic psalm. God is King David's strength. That's one and two. Three and four, he expresses humility. That's the E. He expresses his humility. Five to eight, he petitions for himself and for the people of Israel. 9 through 11, he ties together, so S-E-P-T, he ties together rescue and worship. The E, the next E is he prays that the entire nation, E, entire nation would be blessed. That's 12 to 14. And then finally, 15, the R, is he remembers and calls us to remember that the greatest blessing is to have God as Lord have God as Lord. So S-E-P-T-E-R. I'll go through those again. If you didn't catch them, you'll have plenty of time. We'll fill those in. If you would, let's stand together now for the reading of God's Word from Psalm 144. And at the end of that, I'm going to say the words, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to respond with praise be to God. Let's practice right now. Ready? This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. That's good says this, Psalm 144. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speaks lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you who gives victory to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and tens of thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in the streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. 
Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. As I said, Psalm 144 is most definitely of King David. You heard it quoted, some of the verbiage in 2 Samuel. Um, You see throughout a lot of other psalms that David also authored. Psalm 144 borrows from a lot of different places, a lot of the same verbiage you're going to see as we go through here. Um, He quotes specifically uh, Psalm 20 in places. Psalm 80, 2 Samuel 22. And this is not just David looking out for personal protection from his enemies. We have that in a lot of different psalms. You get more maybe personal psalms, but this one is very public. He's asking for protection from his enemies and the enemies of his people. So to quote Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and horses, but David looks to the Lord his God. And so there are, like I said, six parts to this, and I do want to walk through each one of those. So let's jump in. Strength is the S. Verses 1 and 2. The king gives the Lord credit for strength and success in his role. Hear these verses again. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. Now, rock, the word rock and horn are two words used throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, to signify strength. Strength. Okay? If you think about why, think, think New Testament. Who got named Petros, right? Peter, on, on whom this rock or this strong personality, this strong person, I'm going to build my church. When we think mighty David, though, because David is not saying, I'm strong. I'm strong King David. What he is saying is mighty God. So when we think mighty David and his mighty men, David in Psalm 144 wants us to replace the term mighty or strength or horn or rock with God. So instead of mighty David, it's God's David. Instead of mighty men, it's God's men. All all credit for the power and competency that flows from this conquering hero, these fingers and hands that are trained for war to, to put people under his feet, they go for the Lord. The mightiness gets ascribed to God. David comes right out of the gate and ostensibly after he's had much success and he's asking for even more success from God in this psalm, He's saying, it's not mighty David, it's, it's God's David, and it's mighty God who's doing these things. Now, if you juxtapose this against consistent, chest-pounding hubris of other ancient and even contemporary rulers, you see a pretty significant difference between how King David learned to rule God's people and how everybody else ruled their people. But not only is it might that David gives God all the credit for, the specific skill to apply that might with precision in his role. His role is king and protector of God's people, and because of the disobedience and compromise of his predecessors, his role was to drive the evil, godless Philistines out of the land, out of the promised land, to subdue them. He bears the sword in the name of righteousness. That was King David's 
primary role in his life. And every moment that he has been honed to do so has been ordained by the hand of God. Think about David. Think about, if you look back in the Old Testament, when he comes to King Saul as a boy, and there's this big hubris-filled Goliath is shouting across the valley at the people of God, and David gets a belly full of it, and he comes, a teenager at this point, to the tent of Saul and says, you know, and Saul's trying to fit him with his armor, and he's trying to say this and, and get him ready for this battle and so forth. And King David says, no, 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 I don't, I don't really need all of that because the God, who, the same God who delivered me when I fought lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right, in the name of saving my sheep is the same God. He has honed my fingers. He has dialed in my weapons enough that I can use what I've learned what God has ordained in my life so far to take care of the problem that currently exists in front of us, namely, at that point, was Goliath. And he is carrying forward the same mentality now in Psalm 144 because he's asking for deliverance in battle. He's asking to, to go into battle and to execute his role well, and he's saying in this prayer, I know it's going to be okay. I know that you will deliver me. I know that you will, will conquer these godless Philistines because of all the things in my experiential background that you have ordained in order to bring me to execute my role now. It was a difficult role to be sure, and probably not one that will evidently apples to apples translate to any one of us. I'm sure there were many days where David was probably more than fed up with his role and would have rather just been in the field with his sheep again, plucking on his harp and looking after them. But there are principles here that we can harness that I think would help us. To the strong and the skilled and the competent in their roles in this room, I say to you, adopt the understanding of King David. Nothing you have, nothing you have, O competent one, you have because of anything that you have done or for any other reason that God has ordained it so. Make sure I'm clear because I, I can be one of those people sometimes. You just think you got it going on, right? You're just really good at what you do and you know it. You're not really good at who you are because it was unplanned that way. It's God who ordained it that way, that you might be competent in your role. To the weak and downtrodden, I say this, adopt the mentality of King David and understand this, that God through his word, through his church, and through your resume of trials has given you everything you need to slay the giant, overcome the current obstacle. We each have a role to play in carrying out faithfulness to the Lord. That gets defined differently, but these roles are ordained by God. So how do I know what I'm called to? And I'm not, I'm not really talking about some over-hyper-spiritualized, extra-biblical revelation that's just going to, in, in a quiet moment, is just going to descend upon you like a dove. Are you a father and a husband? Those are roles ordained by God. Those are God-ordained biblical roles he gives you the strength to be skillful at. Protector, provider, teacher. So if you were to pray as a father and as a husband with this mentality that David had, it might sound something like this. Blessed be the Lord who gives me strength to rise early. 
who fills my heart with love for the wife of my youth. He steadies my hand to strike a welding arc. He steadies my hand to turn a wrench. He steadies my pen to write the report. He provides overtime to pay for food and homeschool curriculum. Mother or grandmother might sound something like this. Blessed be the Lord who keeps me diligent in long days without adult conversation. He gives me patience and arms me with the knowledge of a thousand generations of faithful women. Or maybe yours sounds something like this. Blessed be the Lord, my comforter, who lifts my head through chronic illness or pain, who teaches my knees to bear in patience and my heart to long for eternal wellness. No matter the roles that you find yourself in, or that the roles you might be considering finding yourself in, realizing that the Lord is the progenitor of any ability that you have is humbling and important. Whether nations are being subdued under your feet, or rather, you are subduing giant piles of laundry, the Lord is your strength and your deliverer. He is your shield and your rock. Even though you don't really deserve that. You don't really deserve him to be your shield and your rock. Neither did David. And we see that with King David. We, as with King David, are not the most efficient means of God carrying out his purposes. Right? Could he not speak one word and the Philistines be completely subdued? Could not have God just said, enough, and it was done. Philistines were done. Could God not merely will things to happen exactly as he pleased and completely leave you and me and everyone else out of the, of the equation? Yes, he could. And this is what King David is remembering in verses 3 and 4. So he's saying, God is mighty. God has made me competent to, to, to fulfill his purposes. But in verses 3 and 4, he expresses, E-S-E, expresses humility saying, basically, you don't really, you've made me competent, but you really don't need my competencies. Oh, Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you care for him, that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And you've heard this phrasing before in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? Now, it also says son of man in there. We, sometimes we see that phrase son of man, and it's referring directly to, to Jesus, right? We understand that to be a prophetic term. That's not what King David is doing here, not the same language. Okay, he's saying, what is, what is man or sons of us, people, right, that you care and regard? We're like a mist. He's recognizing that the Lord is with him in this task, but he is humbled to be used of the Lord to accomplish anything for the purposes of his God. Now, if we were to adopt this mentality, God is mighty, Let's just step through it again. God is mighty. He has fitted me with competencies to fulfill my roles for his glory, but he doesn't actually need me to fulfill the things that are going to get him glory. That's pretty humbling. 
But if we adopt that mentality, would this not shift our paradigm a little bit if we remained in that state of humility at the fact that God has ordained the work of our hands and the words of our lips to be the means that he accomplishes his purposes? Isn't that humbling to think about? And so suddenly, you don't have to do those duties central to fulfilling your roles. You get to do them for the glory of God. You get to go to work for the glory of God. You get to pray and worship with your families to the glory of God. You get to lovingly discipline ornery toddlers to the glory of God. You get to persevere through trials, not half, get to the glory of God. So, scepter, S-E-P is the next, petition. Now David gets into the meat of what he's asking for. He set the stage now with a correct attitude before the Lord, and now he's going to ask for what he needs. And this is powerful. Verses 5 to 8, bow your heavens. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Hmm. He wants to be rescued. He needs aid. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high and rescue me. Deliver me. Deliver me from these liars. These these men whose right hand... You ever heard of the right hand of fellowship? This is the opposite. It's the right hand of deception. You can't even trust their handshakes. They say one thing and they do another. They make treaties with me, God, and then they attack our border towns. You can't trust them. I don't even, the words they say mean nothing. So he's looking for deliverance here. I I just, I love that, that first verse. I love the imagery of asking the Lord to bow the heavens to rise up from his throne and to come down to rescue the people that he has covenanted with. This is at the heart of every petition we bring before God. When we come before the Lord and petition, asking something of him, which we've done very much of this morning already, and we will do more of, we're going to ask things of him, central to a prayer of petition is a belief that he's going Right? If we don't think he's going to do something, we don't even ask. This is petition. David didn't know the full significance and the weight of what he was asking at the time when he was praying for deliverance from these literal armies, these literal foreigners, these literal wicked men that were around him. But God was not only going to use that prayer and say, I'll do that for you, David. I will come down and help you to defeat the Philistines. But then, thousand years later, one very early morning in the little town of Bethlehem, the Lord would answer his prayer completely, fully, to bow the heavens to earth. He would bow the heavens and he would come down, not only to rescue his people from a temporary foe, but to deliver his people from their foe forever, eternally. You see the whispers of Jesus already right through here. So S-E-P-T. So now he petitions 
And then he ties together, he almost repeats, the, he refrains back in verse 11 to that same speaking lies and right hand of falsehood. But he, he does something a little different now, and he almost, he's giving the reason for his petition. So he's, he's saying, I want you to defeat these enemies of ours, and then I'm going to do something. He's anticipating that God is going to going to answer his prayer, and so he's already anticipating what he's going to do when God answers his prayer, and that thing is worship. So T, he ties together being rescued by the Lord and worshiping the Lord. So verses 9, 10, and 11. I will sing a new song to you, O God, upon a ten-stringed harp I play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me does that refrain again? Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. So now we're getting into to see the foundation of this prayer of petition. David wants God to deliver him and his people, not so that he can take credit for being a great king or a great warrior, but because he wants to point all things back to the Lord. When God saves his people... It speaks outwardly to those who are watching. God is jealous and zealous for his own glory. And David knows this and is appealing to God for that in the rest of this psalm. I think it's an interesting kind of commentary note here. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, noted that what David might have been doing here was he's talking about that deceptive right hand of his enemies, right? The wicked. Remember through the Psalms, the wicked and the righteous. It's a theme that goes all the way through. So now he's saying, well, these wicked men, they reach out in deception with their hand. But what I want to do with my right hand is play a new song unto the Lord and bring glory to his name. He's drawing a contrast. You can't trust their handshake, but with my hands, I want to draw others into worship of God. And it's as if he's saying, when you deliver us, when you deliver us, God, I will be the first one in a line to lift praises to you. I'll lead the singing. In fact, I'll write a brand new song just to commemorate the most recent deliverance of God. This new song is filled with fresh zeal for the salvation provided by God. Now think with me. This is a concept we see all in different places in Scripture. Revelation, this singing the new song to the Lord, right? It's all the way through the Scripture. You hear it continuously. Think about those, and the best way I could phrase this, think about those seasons in your life when you've cried out for deliverance, for salvation, and the Lord has done it. Think, get a moment in your mind. You cried out for deliverance, and Indistinct, it was completely undeniable that it was God that saved you. Remember? Could you not wait to come into his house and sing his praise? Did you not come with a new song on your lips? Is there not a direct tie, tie between God rescuing you and a new song of worship being on your mouth, consider this. We pray and pray and pray that God would draw men unto himself and save them. We pray for that 
our leaders pray for that a lot in this church because that's what, we, that's what we're here for, that God would draw men under himself and save them, that through the gospel and the Spirit's work, hearts would be turned from stone to flesh, and we will give and toil and work to that end. And we have. And then six new brothers and sisters were baptized into fellowship last week, and then what did we do immediately afterward? I haven't heard you sing that loud in weeks You rang the walls with a new song. Why? Because he did it. He did what we asked him to do, and we knew he was going to. We knew he would, and then we rang it out. This is the pattern. David knows the pattern. He knows how it goes because he's been at it for a little while here. He knows. Pattern is this. Get ourselves in a little bit of a mess. Cry out to the Lord for deliverance. Lord comes and delivers. People sing a new song to God. Repeat. That's the pattern. We can't fabricate it, but we can just as David expected. David is praying for deliverance and is planning that he's going to be delivered and planning to sing this new song to the Lord. And perhaps, if I might be so bold to suggest to you this morning, that in those seasons where coming into the house of the Lord becomes rote and obligatory, it may be because you just need to take a nap, right? Because we're very interconnected beings. Maybe our diet's a little off, or our sleep patterns are off. Sometimes you just got to get up and come to church. Can I get a witness? I know. But also, if it happens over and over and over and over again, and this is a season of your life where coming to the house of the Lord is rote and obligatory, it may just be because you've lost touch with the fact that you need delivered, and he's the only one that is going to do it. Ephesians 6 Verse 12 and 13, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil of the day and having done all to stand firm. The front of this table says, remember, right? Do this in remembrance of me. Sometimes I think we are like soldiers on a battlefield picking daisies. There's no urgency. But the situation is very urgent. Principalities, powers, evil, Darkness, pushing, striving. Wake up. That might, be, be, that might be why you're in a season of rote, obligatory action towards God. Because maybe you're not aware you're even in a fight, but you are. You are. Hear this new truth. Hear this truth, not new truth, old truth. Hear this same old truth, new this morning. You and I have done nothing to deserve the deliverance of salvation. 
yet he has done it. This church, this community of believers clinging to the Lord and to his word, Mount Vernon has done nothing to deserve what God is doing here. Yet we sit continuing to maintain gospel witness because he has done it. He is choosing to deliver. And if the bread and the fruit of the vine hit your lips this morning without striking a chord in your heart, allow my words to strike it now. Ready? He bowed the heavens for you. While you were lost in sin and trespasses, your name was already on his lips and it was already sealed for redemption. And if that's enough, he also spoke these words, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's good for you and it's pleasing to the Lord for you to orient your weak for remembering the deliverance of God, to stay sharp in your spiritual senses. Primarily, this is the utility of Bible intake, to remind you constantly of the works of God on behalf of his people that you might praise him, that you might sing a new song to the Lord. But even the simple practice Beyond the, 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 the quiet times and the Bible reading plans, there's much more natural things you can do. The simple practice of laying out your church clothes on a Saturday night starts to orient you to remember the Lord. Gathering the family together for, the dinner, for dinner. Reading the text that's to be preached in the morning. Praying for a brother or sister that you know you're going to see Sunday that you know needs it. Simple, rhythmic practices that orient your heart and your mind towards remembering your deliverance and bringing a new song of worship to Him. S-E-P-T, okay? Tying worship and deliverance together. And then E, the next E. His next part of his petition is that the entire nation would be blessed. He wants deliverance from his enemies he wants, he's anticipating that deliverance is going to happen, and so he's going to write a new song to the Lord. And then he, then as any, any good king, right? Gosh, oh, that we had a king that would pray for us like David prays for his people, right? Verses 12 to 14, then he, he prays for the entire nation to be blessed. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. Granaries full, produce abounding, sheep tens of thousands, cattle heavy with young. If, you don't, if you've never been around cattle, uh, you, when, you may miss the, the somewhat, kind of like, I think maybe David might have been kind of being humorous here too. If you've ever seen a pregnant cow waddle, it's funny. Sorry. Uh, it is funny, though, it's, it, that, you, that they're heavy, that these, that these cows look like they're about to burst with more young and more wealth for the people. And then that there might not be distress in the street, no protests, no people getting angry and upheaval and so forth. 
In verse 12, he prays for families to be fruitful, for sons to be strong and daughters to be beautiful. Then in verses 13 and 14, he prays for material blessings and prosperity. He's praying God's blessing on the nation and on his people. Why? Because this is also goes back up into giving the Lord glory. If his people are, because if you look down at, you get down to 14 or 15, it says, blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall, right? He's saying, God bless your people because if we are being material blessed and you're preserving us, then it, it demonstrates your glory and your prosperity and, and your beauty to other people around us. Man, those people sure must have something going on. Their sons are strong and their daughters are beautiful. Right? He wants outward glory of God to be shown. And then finally, the R, 15. Remaining with God is the greatest blessing. Abiding, remaining with God. Blessed are those who, people to whom such blessings, those material blessings. Then you can almost add in here, but much more, right? Blessed are the people whom such blessings fall, but even more so. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Even if we didn't have the material blessings, and even if the Philistines beat us in this next battle, the highest blessing, we would not turn from the Lord our God because the highest blessing would be that God is our Lord. There was an Anglican minister in the late 1700s, early 1800s, by the name of Charles Simeon. He was radically converted. You, if you're a, a theology person, you can look up Simeon Trust is the name of the... They, they've curated most of his works, and he had a heart for raising up preachers, and so there's a lot of that material. But he was converted radically at the age of 19, had a completely secular upbringing. He didn't know his mother and his father shipped him off to boarding school when he was seven years old. He wasn't a believer. He preached one sermon from this psalm. He preached a lot of sermons, but surprisingly, only one sermon from this psalm that we have record of, and it was entirely devoted to this one sentence, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And I just, I, as I read what he said, his three main points I don't think I can do it any better than him. I tried to modernize some of his language, but I just want to read it to you. Charles Simeon, you can look him up. It says, first of all, this is why. He's basically saying why the highest blessing is that God would be our Lord. First of all, God is the soul's provision. What can the world do for any person? If you are burdened with the sense of your sin, who in the world can remove that load from your heart? If you long for pardon from your sin and peace with God, who in the world can help you with that? If you long for strength to resist temptation, where on earth can you go to acquire it? If you fear death and death's approach makes you go ice cold and you are longing for something to take the sting out of death, nothing in this world can help you with that. If you long for the security of a happy eternity, there's no place on earth that you can go for that. But if you have the Lord for your God, you have pardon and peace and the hope of final glory. The Lord is the soul's provision, and nothing in this world can provide the greatest thing that the soul needs but our Lord. Second point. Secondly, blessed are the people whose God is the Lord, because the Lord is the heart's satisfaction. You could possess everything that is possible to possess, materially speaking. 
The Lord could totally answer the rest of this song, right? You could possess it all. And reputationally speaking, from the standpoint of ambition and power, you could possess everything that this world has to offer, and yet, apart from the Lord, there would be an aching void in your life. That's why Jesus looked at the woman at the well and said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall, nev- that I shall give shall never thirst. It will be like a well of water springing up to everlasting life. Nothing on earth can give that kind of satisfaction. Only Jesus, only the Lord. He is the heart's satisfaction. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And finally, he is first soul's provision, second heart satisfaction, and third lasting portion. Whatever we have in this world, however much we have of it, we will be stripped of it when we leave this world. But at death, the believer, the godly person, only then comes into their full inheritance. For the believer, on earth, however richly blessed you are, you are only living on the allowance. You come into your full inheritance in glory. And so the portion that he gives is greater than anything we could experience here. Millions of age will not lessen that portion or diminish it. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. He is our soul's provision. He is our heart satisfaction. And he is our lasting portion. And that is the greatest message of this psalm. Even in praying for deliverance in war and material blessing for him and his people, David acknowledges that having God rule over them is the greatest blessing of all. He is our rock, our portion, and our deliverer. And I said earlier, wouldn't you like to have a ruler that prayed for you like King David prayed for his people? Wouldn't you love that, to know that you're being prayed for like that? Take it a step further. Wouldn't it be great if we could just have King David ruling over us? If you know your Bible very well, you know that wouldn't actually be the best thing. Even the best king in history still falls woefully short. If you're frustrated and fed up with presidents and congressmen and councilmen and kings, have I got good news for you. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that word is Christ. It's Christ. King of kings, Lord of lords, sits on the throne. And whether or not these kings or lords acknowledge it makes absolutely no difference because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Ready? Jesus Christ is Lord. And this verse will be proven by sight, what we now know by faith. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Let's take about 30 seconds to just let that truth press on our hearts and our minds and our souls, and then I'll close us in prayer.
Let's pray. Let's go to the Lord in petition, just as King David did. Let's pray together. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we lift before you the sick. We ask you to help Ed, brother who's sick. Continue to heal Blair. We give you glory for her recovery. Lord, be strength, strength to those who are weak. Be comfort to the afflicted and be courage to the fearful. We pray for Deputy Hicks, who was wounded two weeks ago and is still recovering. Lord, help the unborn, the babies that you are planning to bless our church family with. I think of the Finks, I think of the Levings and the Marvels. Thwart the murderers of the unborn. May they fall into their own snares. Help our children here, Lord, to grow in the health, fear, and admonition of the Lord. May our sons be strong as saplings grown into oaks, and may our daughters display beauty like columns sculpted for a palace. Thank you for our new brothers and sisters that joined our fellowship last week. I pray for their roots to grow deep in your word, that they may strengthen us with all their gifts and also with their shortcomings. Lord, I thank you for the generous hearts of your people who through an unpredictable couple of years have continued to value and give toward gospel ministry both here in Mount Vernon and abroad. We ask you to provide for us, O Lord. May we be resourceful and diligent, always ready to work hard to provide for ourselves and those in our care. May you reward the work of our hands and bless us that we may be a blessing. Lord, I lift up specifically farmers right now who are busy. I think of the McFaddens and the Besties and the Marvels. I lift them up before you, Lord. And Lord, we lift up before you this morning First Baptist of Clay, Pastor Corey and his family. We thank you that they were able to fellowship with us this morning. We ask that you give them whatever respite may be found during this break, away from duties, and we ask that you bless the gospel ministry of that church. Continue in us, Lord. Send your spirit to help us this week as we seek to carry out our faithfulness to you. Help us to remember we are a blessed people because you're our Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.